I remember as a kid, I always liked to dig in the dirt. I loved rocks. And I wanted to actually be a geologist. I wanted to collect rocks, polish them. I thought the colors they came in were really cool. And I remember finding the shiny yellow flecks in the dirt and in creeks and thinking that I had found gold. And then the disappointment when I was told that it was pyrite, or also known as fool's gold, it was such a blow to me to think that this isn't really gold. You mean I'm not really striking upon a mine? I'm not going to get rich from this? No, Brandon, it's fool's gold. And it's called fool's gold because it's not actually gold. And now we also use this as a phrase to refer to things that people prize too highly. If you prize something that is unworthy of praise, you are investing in fool's gold. Or, as I'm titling this message, you have fool's God. So let's look at Psalm 14 together. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They, being the fool, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread? Who do not call upon the Lord? They, this is now um, referring to the fool again. There they are in great terror. The fool's in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You, now he's addressing the fool. You would put the plans of the poor. You would shame the plans of the poor. But the Lord is the poor's refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Last week, we asked the question, where is God? When it doesn't seem like we can feel him. And we talked about doubt and how sometimes we can doubt that God is there. Sometimes we wonder, what is he up to? Why do I not sense him in my life. And we looked at how God uses these seasons as periods of growth. That was Psalm 13. Where is God? And sometimes there's doubt. Well, God is there whether you feel him or not. You may feel like he's ignoring you, but we must praise what is real. All right? We pray what we feel. God, where are you? But then we praise what is real. In chapter 14, we begin with this statement, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So we come to part two of the two Psalms that are asking us, where is God? Now, I must confess that as I came into this, 
I carried the same assumption I think we all carry when we read that first verse. And that a lot of commentaries seemed, I didn't read a ton of them, but a few commentaries seem to carry into this passage as well. And the assumption is, wait for it. Sorry, I was dying. I was walking around doing stuff. Just be- Okay, the assumption is that this is referring to an atheist. That the atheist says there is no God. There's a problem with that, though. First of all, the text doesn't tell us that the atheist is saying this. It says the fool is saying this. Second, he doesn't say he says it in his head. Atheism is a rational worldview. It says, I cannot reason the existence of a God. It's a head worldview. This text says that the fool says it from his heart that there's no God. There's something else here. This is not a thinking process. I've come to the conclusion there's no God. It's a desiring factor. He says, I don't want there to be God. My desires say there's no God. I want to live and lust for what I could have if there wasn't a judge of the universe. Third, so it says it's a fool. It says it's coming from his heart, not his head. And third, there's no such thing as atheists when the Bible is written. So they're not thinking about atheists. And I don't mean that the word atheist didn't exist back then, because of course it didn't, Pastor Brandon. That's an English word. They spoke Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New. No, that's not what I mean. I mean the concept of there being no God was actually didn't exist until the Christians came along. And you know who the atheists were in the Christian world? The Romans called the Christians atheists. Why? Because the Roman world and every society outside the Jews, every society before the Christians, believed in multiple gods. And then you have this 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 weird, odd outsider group of people in this Roman Empire who say all the gods are false and we believe in one God. What God? Well, you can't see him. You mean you don't have an idol for him? No. You don't have a temple for him? We're the temple Was there any image of this God? Yeah, he was crucified. Oh, you mean like a criminal, like a slave. In other words, the Romans concluded these Christians don't have any God. And so they were called atheists. So the idea of atheism didn't come around until the very early church. Because every society and every person believed in the existence of a higher power. Therefore, as we open Psalm 14, I had written one version of this message, which was all about atheism, then I realized I'm on the totally wrong page here. I'm modernizing the text, and that's not what's happening here. So yeah, I threw that out. It's always a heartbreaker when you have to do that, but I switched it, so it was worth it, metaphorically. (laughs) Um, We're not dealing with atheism here. We're dealing with the fool. And so what I then did is I decided, okay, let's look at the fool. Because actually what we have here is we have a psalm that's about the fool and the wise person. This is in the vein of the Proverbs of what scholars call wisdom literature. And that's where you have two groups of people in the universe. You have the fool and you have the wise man. And they have two very different outlooks on life. So, the fool says in his heart... There is no God. So we're getting to know the fool. Here's his posture. Remember, this is not 
an intellectual conclusion. This is, I don't want there to be a God. This is, this is expressing what he desires. God, in other words, does not rank on his priorities. No one back then said there is no God. What he's saying is there's no room for God in my life. So I'm going to live like there's no God. Now, I'm going to tell you this beforehand. Um, we're going to be in this psalm. We're going to be in Proverbs and we're going to be in Romans. You can find those in the table of contents if you uh, don't know where they are. But for now, Proverbs is the next book to your right. So you can go to Proverbs 1 and we're going to explore the wise man and the fool just for a moment. Proverbs chapter 1. Okay, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Okay, first I want you to notice that the Proverbs tell you right away how to get wisdom in that first line. These are the wise sayings of Solomon. Solomon was the offspring of David, the king. David, the king, is known as the man after God's own heart. His standard for ruling Israel according to God's way was so exemplary that in the future kings of Israel, they would all be compared with David for how they reigned. David became the measuring rod. He had the right relationship with God. And so what comes out of a right relationship with God is wisdom. That's where wisdom comes from. It comes from our relationship with God. It comes from walking God's path. Wisdom does not come from gray hair. That's often said, yes, gray hair, and I'm getting a little salty right here on the chin. <laughs> so I have a little bit. Gray hair can give you wisdom. And by the time you have gray hair, you should have wisdom. But they're not the same thing. I know a lot of foolish gray hairs. I'm not looking at any of them because they're not here. Um, so it's not necessarily old age. It's not, it's not knowledge. And some people say it's the proper application of knowledge. That's not necessarily wisdom. You can have the proper application of knowledge and still be a fool. Wisdom is when we walk in God's path. Now we continue in verse two. He's going to now tell us what wisdom will give us if we follow the path. Um, so these Proverbs are so that we know wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear an increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Okay, what you just read was a bunch of synonyms for wisdom. So verses two through six told you a lot about what wisdom gives you. So it's like righteousness, it's justice, it's having a path, it's having an open heart to learn. Wisdom is a way of life. It's not a status you reach, it's a path you decide to walk. 
And verse 7 sums this up very nicely. Many have called this the thesis of wisdom. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now you might say, this is knowledge. Actually, knowledge and wisdom are synonymous in the Hebrew thought. Because remember, wisdom deals with this large, broad path of walking God's way. And as I've taught you in Hebrew poetry, read line B in light of line A. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What does it say in line B? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There you go. Knowledge, wisdom, instruction. These are God's ways. And so, the fool despises this path of wisdom. But the wise person finds the trailhead by putting his fear in God. Now, the word fear is not this cowering, trembling, I don't want him to notice me. It's not like, just wait till your dad gets home. It's not like that. Fear is reverence, it's respect, or the best way to look at it is, it's understanding that if I sin against this God, there will be consequences. That's what fear means. So it means, he has a path, and I want to walk it. It means, I understand that God is the creator of the cosmos, of the universe. And as the creator, he made it just right. And that there is a grain in the universe. And it runs one way. And if I go against the grain, I will get splinters in my feet. That's what wisdom means. It means understanding God put a design in everything. And I want to go with the design. But the fool goes his own way. He goes against the design, against the grain. That's what the fear of the Lord means. It's, it's looking at him and respecting he's the designer. He's the author of life. I want to be on that path and in that direction. And so, in Psalm, or, sorry, Proverbs 9, we get, um, we get this great invitation from wisdom and foolishness. And they're personified as ladies. Uh, often they talk, a lot of books have just circulated these terms and they're fantastic. Lady Wisdom, because she's high and dignified. And then Madam Folly, because she's a lowlife and she's very seductive. Lady Wisdom, Madam Folly, they come as personifications of these two ways of life. And they try to entice people to choose their path. So, we read... We read in uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10. We'll just pick up in 10. Lady Wisdom is, is calling out to people to come to her. And she says in 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There it is again. The fear of the Lord is the starting point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, Lady Wisdom says, by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. What does that mean? You're going to benefit your own life. If you're wise, you're going to thrive. You're going to, I don't know if you've seen on the internet, but there's a lot of life hack skills. People put out their blogs, how to hack your life, how to get the most out of it. 
Well, Lady Wisdom says, it's me, Wisdom, walking the way God designed us to walk in his path with the grain of the universe. That is how you live an optimal life. So if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. You're going to be sorry at some point in your life. Then, Madam Folly, verse 13. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Loud as in um, thinking that you exist because of your words. That you matter because of everything you tell people you've done. You, you know that. You've, you've heard that. Caution, if people have to puff themselves up with words, you may be dealing with a fool. Woman folly is loud. She's seductive. She knows nothing. Verse 14, she sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Remember, Sheol is that feared place of the dead that the Jews had um, believed in the Psalms days. That shadowy place where you weren't really embodied anymore. You were just kind of a wisp. And that's where Madame Folly's path goes. She offers you freebies. Stole this from the market today. It's hot and fresh. People want something, but there's death in the end of it. So that's Proverbs. And as we saw, this is a way of life. As we saw, wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, like David, is from walking his way, and then we produce wisdom, Solomon, in our lives. David leads to Solomon. Loving the Lord, walking his paths, fearing him leads to wisdom. Back in Psalm 14, we see the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then I highlighted the rest of the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve lines. I guess it depends how you count the way they break it up. In red, the rest of verse 1, 2, and 3, I highlighted in red because here we see the outgrowth of this posture of, I don't want to follow God's path. So if David leads to Solomon, what does there's no God lead to? It leads to this. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand by the way, understand, you should know now, that's in wisdom talk, that is referring to the way of wisdom. And in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, there's a footnote which actually says this could read, act wisely. God looks down to see if there's any who act wisely, who are taking to his path, who fear him, who seek after God or God's way. Verse three, they have all turned aside. Remember how Madam Folly was depicted in Proverbs 9, calling to those who were on their way? They had a direction, but she tried to lure them off the path. And here we see uh, 
Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have all, the fool who said is in his heart, there's no God, they've turned after Madame Folly. Together, they have become corrupt. Do you ever think we're not doing this right? Oh, you're such a wuss. You're such a pansy. Come on. And you've got the peer pressure, the being together. As long as there are sinners together or fools together, there's comfort in that company. Well, if I'm going to hell, at least I'm going with my friends. You hear that all the time. And it's this attitude of it doesn't really matter as long as we're in this together. And so there's this, there's this camaraderie in the way of the fool. That's why it's pop, it's why it's easy to go the way of the fools because you're with the together. Um, if there's a grain of the universe the way God made it, the grain of the world is going against it. So to follow God's way, you're going against the grain of the world as you're going with the grain of God, if you can follow that. It's, it's, it's backwards because God's looking down. He's, he's not seeing any who are choosing his path. He's not seeing any who are acting wisely. So verse three again, they've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. That word corrupt is wonderful. And there's a wonderful Hebrew poetry play on words here. The word corrupt uh, can mean spoiled or sour like milk when it turns. Well, <laughs> I mean, maybe all of us or most of us or some of us have had that experience when you found out the hard way that it turned. Um, that's what it, these people have turned. They're, they're, they're not Twinkies. Their shelf life has expired. They, and that's where the play on words is here because it says they turned aside. So they have turned, but then the word corrupt also refers to the fact that they have rotted. They have turned. And so that's what they are. Sour milk makes you think of the passage where God says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. If that's, if that's about lukewarm. <laughs> there is none who does good. No, not one. So David walking God's way births Solomon wisdom. The fool who says in his heart, there's no God births corrupt, abominable deeds. No one who does good. No one understands or acts wisely. None seek God. They have turned aside. They've gone spoiled, corrupt, soured. There's none who does good. Not even one. That's what the path of the fool produces. And so here we go. What you value will determine what your virtues are. What you value will determine what your virtues are. We can take courses on virtues and the virtues we should follow and how to have a virtuous life. And that can shape what you think about behavior and ethics and character. But what it ultimately comes down to is that your virtues will mirror that which you value. And if you value living as if there is no God without any fear of the Lord, then you will produce these kinds of virtues. And here's the irony. The irony is that the fool is worse than an atheist. Because there are some atheists who have rejected God in their mind, but somewhere in their heart they live like there's going to be responsibility for their actions. I'm not saying they believe in God. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the judge of that. But the, the atheist can still live a virtuous life. But the fool can't. This is where a fool is worse than an atheist. We can work with atheists. Because an atheist ultimately has doubt. And doubt can lead to a pursuit. 
But the fool has despised and denied any place for God in his life. He has chosen a path. It's hit his heart. Actually, my kids have been, um, they just watched Frozen. They, you know, the kids are funny. They bring movies out of the archives they haven't seen for a while that they watched a hundred times. Now they're back in a Frozen kick again. And it reminded me, if you haven't seen this, sorry, you can tune me out for a second. But it reminded me of when Anna got hit with Elsa's ice powers. Um, and, uh, it, it got her, what would the troll say? It's like, at least it didn't hit her heart. We can't heal the heart. We can heal the head. And that's, that's what we're doing with the, with an atheist and a fool or someone who's doubting God and denying God. We're dealing with the difference between the head and the heart. And so the fool has made up his mind. He's on his path. Um, but now notice in the description of the fool, it says at the end of verse one, there is none who does good. And then at the end of verse three, there is none who does good. So it's a bracket, right? It's framing the fool's behavior by they don't do good at all. None who does good. And then the end of verse three ends with a conclusive stamp. Not even one. Final in red ink. Now, if you are, if you're pretty savvy with the Bible, you're thinking of another passage by now. Romans chapter three should come up. And actually, we're going to go there because this entire description of the fool comes up in Paul's summary of humankind in Romans chapter 3. So I told you to at least get your finger there. So you can go now to Romans 3. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Might as well just start there for context. What Paul's doing is he's telling his audience, which is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, or that's people of Israel and non-Jews. He's he's explaining how, look, it doesn't matter what religious camp you're in, everyone has rejected God, everyone's a sinner. That's what he's saying here. So Romans 3, 9. What then? Are Jews any better off because they knew God? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And here's Psalm 14. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And it said corrupt in Psalm 14. So when it turns into Greek, it, it gives us another flavor, worthless, like spoiled milk. No one does good, not even one. Then he keeps building his case. Verse 13 is Psalm 5, which we've already covered. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Oof. Verse 14 comes from Psalm 10. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15 comes from Proverbs 1. We read Proverbs parts of Proverbs 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. See the theme about he's describing the fool here? And Psalm 36 is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. There's no fear of God in their eyes. That's why there's none who does good, not even one, because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What Paul does in Romans 3 is he lays at the feet of every single human. You are that fool, O man. You and I, we have all said in our heart, I don't prize God very highly. Maybe I'll like, you know, to kind of keep my conscience steady, I'll keep him number three, maybe number nine. But no one, until Christ has come to show us the heart and love of God, no one was putting him as the prize of their life. We all as a human race had chosen Madam Folly. We had taken the path of the fool. Our hearts were what were sick. We didn't need to be convinced that there's a God. We needed to see with the heart that this God has a path that's for our good. Not a God who's trying to take your joy and say, nope, you must sit in this little refined area He's a God who's trying to teach us. This is how I made life. And if you will walk my way, you will find life like Disneyland because you will own it. And you will find that there's thrilling. But like the proverb said, to despise the path of wisdom, you're going to regret that because you're going to have lots of splinters by going against God's grain. There's going to be lots of things you missed out on and you're going to end up smelling like sour, spoiled milk. And you're going to taste like it. You don't want to marinate in that. We'd rather marinate in the sweetness of Christ. And so Paul builds this case that this is where the human race is at. And if this wasn't convincing enough, Romans chapter 1, you go left. Obviously, Romans chapter 1. This is how he starts off the book. After a lot of introductory hellos, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says this. The wrath of God is revealed. Please note, this is not saying it's going to be. Now, that is also true. But he's saying at the moment, the wrath of God is actually happening. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, here's why, this is why this is a case against them. Because in verse 19, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So like nobody's with, nobody has an excuse. They've seen. So the fool is obviously trying to suppress God. Verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, verse 21, he gets right to what Psalm 14 is saying. For although they knew God in their head, right? For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God in their heart or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. You almost think of that like they just became spoiled milk. And their foolish hearts were darkened. There you have it. The fool has suppressed knowledge of God. He said, no, I, I understand he's there, but I'm going to put a different value system in my heart. Verse 22, 
claiming to be wise. Lots of wise, so-called wise fools out there. By the way, do you know what a sophomore is? A wise fool. Isn't that great? So you want to live like a sophomore? No offense, sophomores, if you guys are around. (laughs) You want to live like a sophomore? Yeah, go for it. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And, And this is how. This is what they did. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yep, we see you. We don't want to prize you. So we're going to push you down the ladder a little bit. And what do you do? When you put the creator down the ladder, you put the creation up the ladder. And so this is what they did. They did this exchange. This is what a fool does. He doesn't prize the creator. The fool prizes the creation. That's what a fool does. So what does God do? Verse 24. He gives them up. This is what you want. Verse 25. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And so there's a lot of descriptions there, um, which it seems like there's a description of homosexual behavior. Pretty clear allusion, it seems like. Uh, verse 28 and 20, or sorry, verse 29 and 30 and 31 have a long list of other sins. And what Paul is saying is that the fool who has said in his heart, I don't prize God, has actually in his own life received the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is coming and manifesting itself by giving them the desire of their heart. It's letting them have their way. So they're being punished by having their way. And when you read, when you take the time to read Romans 1 and just dwell on it, you're like, oh my goodness, I don't want that lifestyle. And so the wrath of God is revealed because he lets the fool have what he wants. Ugh, okay. Well, Psalm 14, we're back. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because he doesn't prize God. He prizes the creation instead. We will always praise what we prize. We will praise what we prize. And so the fool, the fool is not praising God. The fool praises the works of his hands. He doesn't prize God, so he doesn't praise God. So what does he have? He, pra- he praises creation. He praises the works of his hands and what he creates. So he pushes God aside and this is what I prize. And so, and so they praise their accomplishments. They, they praise their deeds. They praise the crazy times they're having. They, they praise what they're up to. They praise themselves in a sense. But the wise man, the wise man is a person who prizes God. So the wise man is the person who praises God. You see that? And here's the sad thing is that when, when, um, when we don't prize God and we don't praise God, we will not have any pleasure from God. So when I prize the creation, and I praise the works of my hands, I am limited 
to receiving pleasure from the works of my hands. I'm limiting myself. Here's, here's what John O'Donohue said. He said that when the soul praises, the life enlarges. When the soul praises, the life enlarges. And think this through for a minute. If I am left to praise that which is beneath me, which I have made, if that's my praise, something I've created, or the creation around me, then I'm limited to enjoy the stuff I made or the stuff around me. Um, but if I praise God, I've now enlarged my life to enjoy everything of the infinite God and everything he made in it. Everything he made in it. Um, for example, like you can take an apple and you can take a wonderful crispy sweet bite into a honey crisp apple and you can say, this is a good apple. And you can enjoy it and have pleasure in it and be done because you praise God. But if I'm limited to praising the creation, I will take a bite of that apple and think, oh man, I need more of these apples. Because this has become the source of my praise. And because this is the source of my praise, it has become the source of my pleasure. So I need more of it. When we looked at Psalm 8, we saw how God created everything. He made, so God made the world. But it, Psalm 8 says that he put humans somewhere above creation and somewhere below God. Remember that? But you have made him hardly, what, what, I can't remember the wording anymore, a little less than God or than the heavenly beings. Humanity is not quite God, but definitely above creation. We're floating in between God and the creation. And here's what happens is when we exchange prizing and praising God for prizing and praising the creation, we are stepping down from what we're made to be. So we're actually investing our praise and pleasure in something which is smaller and less able to fulfill us. So it's as if you're really enormous appetite is sitting down to eat fortune cookies. You can't satisfy yourself with that. So what do you do? You have to continue to push your way of life to find more. And that's where the fool goes. He begins to overstep his bounds. And you do see this, by the way, in verse 4. It's a quite uh, poetic depiction of what I'm saying. Have they, the fool, no knowledge? Yes, they don't have knowledge because fools don't have knowledge, right? Because knowledge belongs to the whiz, the wise, the whiz, the whiz wise. Um, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? See, small praise produces small pleasure. So what do they do? They begin to overreach. Consumerism becomes their need because there's no satisfaction in what they've prized and what they're praising. So they have to keep on consuming, keep on buying, keep on overreaching. And what ends up happening in a world where people are overreaching and getting more than they need is that other people are getting eaten up in the process. There's a cost for everything we consume. Now, there's a proper allotment to everyone. But as soon as we take more than we need, Someone else is losing. And this is what David is seeing in this psalm. He's like, God, 
these people, they're eating up my people. What are they up to? Have they no knowledge? And God's like, yeah, they have no knowledge. Because their praise is so small. They've prized things that they're supposed to rule over. So they're finding pleasure in those things. They can't get enough. So they keep on wrecking the creation, wrecking people around them. It's the path of the fool. So we don't want a fishbowl soul. That's what the fool has is a fishbowl soul. A fishbowl, a little glass bowl with water in it and a little goldfish in there, right? Now, you've perhaps heard it said um, that goldfish will only grow to the extent of their surroundings. So if you keep that goldfish in that fishbowl, you get a little tiny goldfish forever. Why do we want to praise something as dinky as a fishbowl when we can swim the ocean and grow up in Christ? Think of your praise. That which you prize, you praise. So if we're prizing the creator, then our praise is our fishbowl. How big is that fishbowl if we're praising the creator, prizing the creator? Ginormous. So our praise will enlarge our life. It will give us freedom. It will help us roam the way we were meant to roam. But if we prize the creation, then our praise will be as dinky as that. And we're exchanging this vast God for this confined, limited thing. And so we will remain small and we will remain fish food. For the toilet. These little goldfish die. That's why that's we don't want that fishbowl soul. So we must avoid the path of the fool who prizes ha my way, put God over here. We want to prize God so our praise is as large as the Creator. Because we will we can only grow to the extent of what we praise. You will never outgrow what you praise. Consider that for a moment. If you praise, let's be really ridiculous right now. If you praise the honey crisp apple for the honey crisp apple, you will never grow beyond a honey crisp apple. You'll never grow beyond that which you're praising. And that's why we praise God. That's why the Psalms invite us to praise some something, someone bigger. Because it wants us to live large and to grow large. You will never outgrow God. The boundaries are limitless. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul touches on this when he prays that the Ephesians will grow up in Christ. And then he says that you will know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length. And then he doesn't even tell us of what. Some translations insert the love of Christ, but it's not there in the Greek. He just says that you'll just know the expanse, the expanse of, of God, this limitless expanse that you would roam free, large, unshackled, unbound, get out of the fishbowl and swim in the essence of your creator himself. So we praise what we prize and our delight, our satisfaction will never outgrow what we praise. We want the way of wisdom. God's looking. Are there any who understand my way? 
And then Christ comes. And Christ comes as the image of the wisdom of God. And Christ shows us the way to God. And he says, look, don't, don't get stuck in the praise of your thinking or the praise of your theological bent or the praise of your religion, but be even beyond that. Because he called out the most religious godly people of his culture in the Pharisees. They were respected by the people. That he's like, you guys are in a fishbowl religion right now. You've confined God to this. You've actually made the creator into your own creation. And though you think you're praising God, you think we're not the fool. We say in our hearts there is a God. He's saying, you haven't prized God the way that I want you to prize God. So Jesus shows them a bigger, better God. And they don't prize him. They despise him. And they crucify him. But because Jesus knows the right way, he's the model of the path of wisdom, not even the cross can confine people who walk God's path. He is raised from the dead. Not even the, not even death, not even the grave can confine the ones who choose the wise path of God. There are no limitations to those who say in their heart, there is a God and I prize him above all, so I praise him endlessly, and I am satisfied. Maybe you are not in a place where you desire or prize God. That's been a struggle for you. I understand that's a very real situation because we aren't always given a very good portrayal of who God is. And sometimes the people in our lives who talk the most about God end up showing us with their lifestyle the other path, the fool's path. And it's contradictory to us, and we're not sure what to make of that. I understand that that can happen. It could have been your parents. It could have been me, heaven forbid, but it could have been. Um, I don't think I'm a fool, though. I hope um, it could have been maybe another pastor. It could have been maybe you were from like a cult or some kind of strange or maybe it was just the the weird Christians that you saw. And like, I don't know what they're up to. I don't want to drink that (laughs) Kool-Aid. But here's here's the truth is that God is worthy of our praise. And we don't want the fool's God because we don't want fool's gold. We don't want to prize that which is unworthy of praise. We want to prize a God who's worthy of all honor, glory, and praise, and strength, and blessing, as Revelation 4 and 5 show heaven just throwing every great acronym toward, um, acronym, adjective, toward God and his being. Um, that's that's what we want to praise. And so it's 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 a reality that we may not desire God the way we should because we were actually shown a fool's God. But in the same way that fool's gold isn't gold and isn't worthy of your prizing or praising, a fool's God is not God and is not worthy of your prizing or praising. Only the true God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ Because Jesus Christ was not just the idea of God. Jesus was not just the, let me address your head about who God is of God. Jesus was the heart of God. Jesus walked the path of God. Jesus showed us the way of God. Because God is more than an idea. He's the way we prize life. 
him at the center and praising him in the center. So how do we, if we're kind of at a place where maybe God isn't prized and praised as much as he should, how do we get there? The same exact way that you get to prizing and praising appropriate foods that will make you healthy and live better. It's not easy. Most people don't like diets because they don't taste very good until you stick with it. And then actually something happens if you stick with it. Your diet tastes like normal and you don't want to go back. Because what actually happens is your taste and your body get adjusted to, oh, this is more nourishing. I want this. And you begin to associate delicious with something new. Yes, it's work with the new diet. You got to... Ah, oh, you got to break habits is what you have to do. What I don't, I'm just going to throw a number out there. Like 70% of our eating is habitual. I, I'm, this pro- sounds right. A lot of our eating is actually habit. And a diet changes that because you actually have to choose all of a sudden. You're like, I can't just do what I'm used to doing. You got to think it through and it's painful. But eventually you begin to prize the right sorts of foods. Well, to prize God, we have to take up not the Atkins diet, not the keto diet, not the whole 30 diet, not there's if you just do a Google search, there's too many of them. We have to take the prayer diet. There's no other way to prize God than to sit with God one on one. You must sit at the table of God. You must take up Lady Wisdom's offering to come and eat at her table. Or in Revelation 3 where Jesus says, I know, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. You must open that door. You must sit down at the seat. You must take a bite with Christ. There's no other way to desire and to prize the essence of God's true nature, unless you sit down and dive in. And yes, at first you're like, I prayed, didn't do anything for me. Well, guess what? You ate a diet of carrots today and you got on the scale and you weighed the same you did yesterday. Maybe a pound or two different. Because that's not how diets work. It's about walking the path long enough to be changed by it. So the prayer diet is walking and praying and entering and eating with Christ over a period of time till it becomes part of your soul and your nature. And then you are changed by it and you find that I desire this God. I desire him. I'm not saying, well, there's a contest or I'll put him kind of like second place and a half. Full prizing and praising the creator when we spend time with him in prayer as consistently, as intentionally, as ruthlessly, and as daily as a diet. So, yep, you're going to pray one day like, didn't do anything. You're going to pray for two days. You're going to pray for two weeks. It might be different for all of us, but somewhere, if you stick with it, the desire changes in you. What you prize changes. Oh, and here's the other thing. I mean, I can eat all the lettuce I want, but if I end every day with all the Oreos I want, you know, I'm kind of offsetting the whole thing a little bit. It doesn't quite work that way. But um, here's the thing. Instead of prizing what you're used to prizing, 
put that aside and replace it with prayer. It's not just adding prayer on as if salt will make you healthy. It's adding, it's not adding prayer at all. It's replacing what you used to prize with prayer instead. That's how you reorient your desire. And that's how you will build a life of praise around this freeing God who says, I want you to be everything I'm envisioning you to be. I want you to walk free and unrestricted with joy and in my goodness. I want you to frolic. Jesus said in in John 10, I've come to give life and life abundantly. He said, I'm the door of the sheep when he said that. The image is this, not not just this little pasture of, okay, the other sheep are over there, so we got to respect their space and there are bears over there, so don't go too close to those trees. This is our parameter, the little sheep. Jesus' image was life and life abundantly was rolling endless vistas of pastures where the sheep can frolic free and fancy yeah fun and fancy free Uh, carefree is what i was trying to say the words just like come like which one is it um that's how he wants us to be so the fool says in his heart there's no god but the wise person says in his heart there's a god and it's it's gonna be in the way i live i'm gonna live every day every decision every thought every word as if there's a God. It's a huge difference in saying, I'm going to do it as if there isn't a God. So closing thought for you. If you go back and read Romans 3 and that list of the humanities turn toward foolishness, notice that there is zero praise in that passage. In fact, it goes out of its way to say that there throat is an open grave and under their tongue is the poison of asps praise comes from prizing god so let's practice prayer let's practice praise and as we prize god we won't have the fool's god we'll have the true god and we will be uh we will be living the way he intended us to let's pray